turn up your radio, it's time for DeLorean Talk with your host, Dave Tavers. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to DeLorean Talk. This is Dave Tavers, VIN 10515. Today's episode is actually, I think, something pretty special. I recently got to get to know an ex-DeLorean owner, but somebody important in the DeLorean community, and turned out that he had an audio tape from June 6, 1987, of John DeLorean telling some of his life story, some of his stories from jail, and talking about the trial. I have listened to it, and it is uh, kind of blew my mind. But I want to do a quick little uh, intro with the person that owns the tape, and that is Daryl Tinnerstedt. Hey, Daryl, thanks for joining me here. Thanks for having me. I'm not no longer a DeLorean owner, but I'm still very interested. <laughs> and you and you have quite a history that I am excited to do a full episode with you on. But today, this is just a, an intro to this recording of John DeLorean. And I want to say a billion times, thank you for saving it for all these years, and thank you for being willing to share it with everybody. Well, I am a pack rat, so. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And this is something I could see where I would end up saving something like this as well, and uh, I, I, I think this is pretty special. I have seen and read and watched everything on the internet the, related to John DeLorean, I, I think, like a lot of people have. And I've never, ever heard this or anything like this before. The closest it comes to mind is when DeLorean spoke at the 2000 DCS, and he spoke for about 20 minutes. And there's a couple of things from that talk, that video is up on YouTube, that he that is also in this. But that was, what, 13 years after this tape. And this goes into a lot more detail of just stuff I've never read or seen heard before. So I'm I'm really excited to share it. The question for you is, why do you have this tape? How did you get it? And what's the story behind it? Well, I have it because, like I said, I'm a pack rat. And I <laughs> I found it in a drawer in my desk. Um, the story is, I bought my first DeLorean in February of 86. Uh, shortly after that, I joined the Pacific Northwest DeLorean Club. And sometime after that, I bought my wife a custom-made DeLorean necklace that was made by uh, PNDC member Gary Hull. Um, fast forward a little bit, and about a year, a little over later, maybe the end of May of 87, um, my wife was working part-time as a bank teller in Olympia, Washington, and a customer came in and spotted that DeLorean necklace and said, hey, that's a DeLorean. And then he said, did you know that John DeLorean was going to be speaking at a church meeting in the Seattle area in like a week or two? Of course, we didn't know this. And uh, so she came home, told me that. And so we we uh, did some research to find out exactly when and where. And you know, to this day, I cannot remember where, <laughs> but somewhere in the Seattle area. So I got a hold of my friend, Mike McDonough, who was the only other DeLorean owner in the Olympia area. And on June 6th of 87, we went up to uh, this church service where he was kind of talking about um, 
you know, how he'd seen the light after his problems and all that stuff. They had a couple of other speakers that told other uh, stories, but he was the, the main speaker. And there was probably about 200 people uh, there. And so then uh, he started giving his uh, his talk. And it started from the very beginning of his life as he remembers it and went all the way through the, the current time. It was kind of funny. My friend Mike was so excited to be there that he went right up on the stage with uh, DeLorean and got his autograph oh, right wow. up there in front of everybody. Nice. Uh, I was I was a little more uh, hesitant, so I waited until after he was through speaking. I got his autograph on the back of my business card, which I still have, and I also had him autograph several copies of his autobiography that I just happened to have with me. <laughs> well, then at the end of his talk, they told us that they had what I guess you call a gang recorder. It was a, a cassette audio recorder that had like 15 or 20 tapes recording at the same time. And they said uh, for something like $3 a piece, they'd sell us a tape. So of course I went and bought one and it's been lying in my desk drawers ever since. $3. That's pretty much the story. That I, is... I think so. Something nominal like that. It yeah. was very low. Still amazing. And for being such an old cassette, the sound, it sounds really good. He, his talk is fantastic. And the fact that you got to be there and hear this in person is pretty cool too. It was. I, I have a picture of him with his arm around my shoulders. And uh, like I said, I got autographs. It was a pretty cool evening. It really was. He seemed kind of nervous and he he wasn't real talkative to people afterward, but, but he, you know, he took his time and, and uh, said hi to people and stuff. Uh, it was a great evening. Nice. All the stuff that I have read and studied on DeLorean is he was, he was a private guy. Uh, I think about oh, yeah. all of the all the videos and all the audio that I've heard of him through the years. Usually, it, there's five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes at most of his of him talking, and it's usually directed by someone else who is asking questions and things like that. And that's why I think this is so unusual, as I've just never heard him tell such a long all of the story, and I especially the the days that he spent in jail uh, while they were trying to get his bail money together is pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. As I said, we will do an episode of DeLorean talk with you because I am fascinated by your history. You are one of the very early DeLorean non DMC business people out there uh, that started back in 86. And there's a, a lot of story to tell there. So we will be doing an episode, and for those that are interested, we'll we'll get back to Daryl. For now, I hope that you enjoy this and be sure to share it. I I think that there's some pretty cool stuff in here for for the DeLorean community and anyone who's interested in John DeLorean. Well, I'm looking forward to the next next talk we get to do, Dave. It's it's fun. It it is, and and you've got a lot of great stories. So enjoy this <laughs> and episode. Most of them are true. <laughs> Enjoy this episode. Uh, it's a little bit longer than normal, but I think that you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening and uh, drive safe. Throw a few of these people in, too. And incidentally, Sandra, I'm looking for you to get me a table at Spago next Friday.
Now, I tell you, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, I was talking earlier about Seattle back in the 70s when I was ahead of Chevrolet, and I remember what a horrible, depressing place this was around. <laughs> in fact, somebody mentioned, I think there was a big sign at the edge of town that said, the last one out, turn off the lights. Yeah. And when I took a walk today for an hour down to the water and back, and it seems like every other building has been torn down and they're building a new one. It's just marvelous, the, the dynamicism of this community. Anyhow, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I want to thank you for coming. I guess the object is for me to tell you a little bit about my life, which I'd be very pleased to do, and the impact that the Lord has had on it. I was born in Detroit. And in a, what today would be called a black and Polish ghetto, I guess in those days nobody knew the difference. And we were extremely poor family. My dad was a, a factory worker, worked for the Ford Motor Company in the foundry. And in those days, this is prior to the guaranteed annual wage, so what the, uh, the way that the business community operated in those days, the automobile business, is they'd build all the cars they could for about six months and then they'd lay everybody off for the other six. So fortunately for our family, my father had learned the trade of, of uh, being a carpenter. So when his six months came that he was going to be unemployed, he usually found a little bit of work. So we were a bit better off than some of the other people. But it was a, it was a, uh, a tough time. But of course, youth by its nature is a happy time for most people. And I can't say we went hungry. But uh, in any event, the, both of my parents were immigrants. My uh, mother came over, I think, with her parents from uh, uh, what is now uh, Austria, but she, they were Hungarian at about eight years old. My father was the youngest of 13 boys in uh, eastern France, and so traditionally in uh, European families, the eldest inherits everything, so I think he figured his chances of getting anything were pretty slim. So he, he ran away and stowed it on a ship over here, I think, when he was 13 or 14, and he wound up working around the United States as a cowboy. And then a, as he grew up and got tough, he loved to fight, so he became a policeman in Gary, Indiana, where every Friday night when these guys got paid, they loved to take on the local policeman, and they, everybody just had a good time. <laughs> Anyhow, the only time I knew him, he was a factory worker at uh, Ford Motor Company, and he'd gone through a period which I really didn't come to appreciate till much later in my life, but he was a man who was really had a pretty good mind, but he was totally devoid of education. And that's a terrible handicap. And when I see what's happening in some of the, the bad areas, the South Bronx and some of the areas in the United States, I have a very, very strong feeling on the subject. Because in his instance, when he had a Back in the early days of the union movement in the United States, he was an organizer, and I can remember even as a kid he'd come home with his shirt half ripped off and blood all over it from being beaten up by the goons that Henry Ford had in those days. In fact, I remember one time when I was about eight years old, about four o'clock in the morning, the front door burst open. We didn't open it, and all of a sudden there were three of Henry Ford's so-called special service guys who went through the house from top to bottom searching every nook and cranny. No search warrants, no anything. And of course, because my father had been involved in the union movement, they were looking for any possible company property they could use as a basis for a dismissal. But that was the, the kind of life that people, the workers lived in Detroit when, uh, you know, when this all went on. In any event, the one thing my parents learned as immigrants was that the real 
thing that anybody had to have to get ahead in America was an education. And so that's something they stressed to me and my uh, three brothers just constantly. And consequently, we are, we're all somehow well-educated. I think between us, we have about 11 degrees. In any event, I didn't really come to appreciate him. What happened then is after the union movement was over, while the movement was successful in retaliation, he wound up getting some pretty horrible jobs. And he spent most of his life working in a foundry where the air was so dusty and polluted that you couldn't see your hand a foot and a half in front of your face. And I remember after he died, I got a phone call maybe six months later from the Ford Motor Company, and I said, well, you can come and pick up your dad's toolbox. It's still chained to the post out in the middle of the factory. So, And they didn't want to cut the chain until somebody from the family was there. So I went over, and of course, I never, uh, he and I really never got along. But uh, I didn't, never realized what a horrible life that he was leading until I got into this factory and saw this terrible place he worked with his toolbox chained to this post, which by that time had been ransacked and there was nothing but an empty box there. But uh, in any event, as a result of this, he became an alcoholic, which of course is a very serious and pervasive problem in America and had a tremendous impact on our family life. It was, uh, it was really pretty bad, more for my mother, I think, than uh, the rest of us. Because of getting a decent education, I wound up as almost anybody who has any education or not in Detroit in the automobile industry. Uh, I wound up working for General Motors, and I was always surprised primarily as an engineer. I was in the beginning surprised when I got promoted when other people who seemed to have better educations, better families, and so on weren't. And of course, it was... It was, uh, I just couldn't understand it. But in any event, I moved up rather quickly. And a funny thing happens to you in any organization when you slowly get to the top. The first thing you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of sort of hangers-on and yes-men. And the other thing is, your every move is anticipated. Somebody's there with a limousine or a helicopter or a company plane. And when you go to a... I remember when I traveled around the country one, one time back when I think I was a manager of Pontiac, I was in a hotel somewhere and there was a gigantic bowl of fruit on a table. And I looked at it and I said, oh, there's no bananas. Well, everywhere I went for the next five years, there were 500 bananas. <laughs> and that's the nature of the, you know, the kinds of things they did. Well, it, it doesn't take very much for that to, to turn you into an egomaniac. And believe me, that's what happens, unfortunately, to too many people. I think you're seeing a great deal of evidence of that in Washington today, where your ego has become so great that you start thinking you're all-powerful. I was very fortunate. I owe a lot to General Motors because throughout my career, I made a tremendous amount of money. Uh, I moved up very rapidly. I learned an incredible amount. They gave me a great deal of opportunity to uh, learn things and to participate, to learn what management was all about. I became, by GM standards, pretty successful. I think the records that I set when I ran Pontiac and Chevrolet still stand today some, what is that, 15, 16 years later. So uh, after doing this for about 17 and a half years, I had been, a, basically, I'm an engineer. And what happens to you in business is you get to a point where you can't be an engineer anymore. If you want to be promoted, you have to be something else, and you become a so-called manager. And, of course, that's what happened to me. And the, 
uh, first I ran Pontiac for three or four years and then Chevrolet, and then later I was promoted to group executive in charge of all the car and truck divisions of GM, which is about 87, 88% of the corporation. Being a manager, especially being a group executive, just wasn't fun anymore. When you were an engineer, you had the creative excitement of designing and building things and seeing them come into fruition. As a manager of a division, a competition, you know, you were watching what Lee Iacocca was doing on the other side of town, and you were fighting nip and tuck, and every 10 days, your progress versus his was managed and, and uh, clearly understood by the public. So it was really, it was an intense competitive game, and you were like the quarterback of a team. Well, then suddenly, when you become a group executive, it was pretty much like owning the stadium, and all of a sudden, you're renting out the facilities, but you really don't have much to say about what goes on in them. And in government and in big business, the information that reaches the top is usually what the people down below want to reach the top. It very seldom is the truth, and it's never the whole truth. I decided I'd had enough of that, and I've been really had a, a desire to go back and to do some creative engineering again. And I'd been laboring under a lot of ideas that I had. I wanted to build a car of my own over a long period of time, and at the time. I guess it was an ego trip, too, although I didn't think of it as such. I looked, had a whole bunch of altruistic motives that seemed to be involved in the whole thing. I then uh, resigned from General Motors. I spent a year then working for the government in, as a volunteer president of the National Alliance in Washington, finding jobs for disadvantaged Americans and needy use, which is an area of, the, uh, of America's industrial life I've been involved in all my life, primarily because of where I was born. I have great empathy and sympathy for those who have less in our country. In any event, after doing that, I became a consultant then and set up this automobile company. And uh, I left GM just about 14 years ago. In fact, it was 14 years ago last month. And I must say, it proved to be infinitely more difficult than I had in mind, and of course, with many more pitfalls. You know, reading the Bible, I think Job had his problems for six months. I've had mine for 14 years. That's a pretty tough trip. <laughs> we set about, and I became a consultant for, uh, really, for Sears Roebuck, for the French government, for Ryder, for Chris Craft, for a number of major corporations. And when I left GM, I was convinced I was going to take a substantial cut in pay. I think the year I left, I made 755000 which was uh, 19, in uh, 73. Well, that would, in today's dollars, would probably be two and a half or three million. But uh, in, uh, surprisingly, uh, with these various consulting contracts, I think over the period of the next couple of years, I made five or six million dollars. And I invested all of that, every single penny of it, in working on this automotive concept I had. We built some prototypes of the kind of car I thought I wanted to build. And then I reached a point where I through a combination of market testing and, and intuition, I decided that this was an economic opportunity, that there was a place for this kind of a car and that we should go ahead and do it. We set about then to try to provide the financing. And of course, as a man who spent his life in a major corporation, I knew absolutely nothing about raising money. So in GM, when you wanted to build a new engine plant in Tonawanda, you filled out a form and said, I need $558 million, and this is what I'm going to do with it. And about three months later, this big pile of paper would come back full of signatures saying, well, go ahead and spend it. And that's exactly what I knew about raising money. So I went through a, what proved to be a 
series of rather humiliating experiences all over the world trying to scrape up some money. Ultimately, we wound up making a deal with the British government to build a factory in Northern Ireland, in Belf West Belfast, which even today is the worst terrorist area in the Western world. It seems so like such an opportunity to me as a man who has always had great concern for his fellow human being to be able to build a factory in an area where unemployment was over 40%, where uh, you know today I think there's still only about, between Ireland and Northern Ireland, there's only about 4 million people. There's uh, 10 times as many Irishmen in America as there are there because there just are never economic opportunities. In any event, it seemed like an opportunity to help solve a a serious human problem at the same time to realize and fulfill my dreams. So I became very enthusiastic about it. We started to build our factory up there, and in Belfast, when they build a plant here, as most of you in business know, the boss gets the corner office with the view of the sound and so on. There, the secretary sits on the outside, and the boss sits in the middle because the, he's, got a, he's got a lot better chance of not getting shot if he's in the middle of the office <laughs> instead of on the end. And it's amazing, but that's the way it is. I often wondered why the secretaries put up with that, but I guess they figured nobody's going to shoot a little girl through the window. Anyhow, we set about then under the uh, auspices of the then labor government who felt that uh, after all this, uh, these 600 years of... Uh, sectarian violence that maybe the only real opportunity is to get a substantial employment in Northern Ireland. And by doing that, if a man has the ability then to provide the necessaries for his family, the nice things that they need, uh, a home and a good clothes and a chance at a decent education, that he's much less inclined to go out and get in trouble and try to uh, in get involved in the various terrorist acts that were going on. And we were selected then by the labor government as sort of a pilot program to prove that theory. We then set about building this factory in West Belfast. We built it on a cow pasture between major Catholic and Protestant developments that over the years had been a battlefield. I think some 40 or 50 people had been killed on that particular piece of ground over the, last, uh, over, over the period of this uh, violence and terrorism. We put a uh, team together. We started to build a factory. And... Uh, Oh, in a period of about two and a half years, which for Great Britain, even for the United States, uh, is a world's record. Cars were rolling off the line. They were very well accepted. At that point in time, we had about two and a half years of uh, committed dealer orders on our books. Uh, when by uh, November of 1981, we were making four and a half million dollars a month. We were the only profitable automobile company in Great Britain. And lo and behold, now the Thatcher government has come in and they've decided they are not going to be involved in any government-supported businesses anymore. And as you know, they have since sold off the telephone company. Uh, British Airways now is being sold or selling Rolls-Royce. They sold off parts of British Leyland, British Petroleum, and so on. And at the same time, they discontinued support to all the various government-sponsored businesses in that area. And so we had now built a factory. We trained a workforce. We had 2,600 people in our plant. We were employing a total of about 15,000 between the suppliers and the people actually in the factory. And by the terms of our master contract, uh, we were entitled to $93 million worth of working capital. So, of course, I went to the government and said, well, you know, now we need it because we were, we're building cars rapidly and we need the money. Well, they said, you're not going to give it to you. And our contract called for Paris arbitration if there was a dispute. 
So my law firm in New York, Paul Weiss, which is, uh, you see Arthur Lyman is the attorney who's with that firm in this Iran-Contra thing. Uh, in any event, they drafted an elaborate letter making a demand on the British government that we go to Paris and arbitrate. So I took this carefully drafted letter that my attorneys had worked so hard on, and they looked at me and laughed. They said, what, do you think the British are going to go to Paris and let them decide our business? You're nuts. So they not only wouldn't deliver the funds we were entitled to, but uh, they wouldn't even negotiate or arbitrate. And, of course, consequently, uh, they wound up putting our company in receivership. Uh, at that point in time, and this would be approximately February of 1981, I went into a panically search all over the world trying to find funds to keep the company open. And, of course, in retrospect, that was a stupid thing to do because it was obvious if the British government wasn't going to support an activity in which they had already invested almost $200 million, it didn't make any sense for me to try to save it. But I wouldn't let that happen, I think partly because of a humanitarian concern for the people, partly for the futility of it all because we'd built a successful company, we'd done everything we said we were going to do, we had uh, orders on the books for the next two and a half years, and as I said, we were making over $50 million a year at the time they closed us down. So uh, I talked to just about, if somebody told me there was an Arab in a closet, I'd stand outside and read him my sales pitch. That's how anxious I was to try to find money. And doing this all over the world, well, lo and behold, about this point in time, there's a uh, criminal trial going on in the federal building in Los Angeles, and one of the men involved in the case is a, a confidential informant named Hoffman, who had been a confidential informant a number of times. In this particular case, he was putting his two best friends in prison in exchange for his immunity. And while he was sitting in the courtroom, and this is in February of 1981, he was sitting in the, or February of 82, I should say, sitting in the courtroom waiting to, t or up in the FBI headquarters waiting to go down to the courtroom and testify. He's being babysat by two agents. And he's reading the Wall Street Journal, and he sees an article in the Wall Street Journal saying how desperately, because the British government has now pulled our financing, how desperately we need money. And he said, you know, I bet I can nail this guy for you. He needs money so badly. Well, lo and behold, that's how I got, I wound up being involved in this plot. From that point on, then the government went through, with the help of this guy and a couple of what I consider relatively unscrupulous prosecutors who saw an opportunity to make a big name and get a big bonus for themselves, I was selected as a target, and they set about them trying to concoct various schemes, and they discussed a dozen different possibilities as a manner to try to pull me into a trap for a celebrity prosecution. Uh, I was contacted then by this man about five months later, I think the 1st of July of 1982, and he called and he uh, reminded me that we had met once. He rented a house across the street from a farm I had down in uh, Palma Valley, which is uh, near Escondido in North San Diego County. And I didn't remember who it was, but he said, I have some investors who are prepared to make a substantial investment in your company, and if you're interested, and if the company is still salvageable at that point in time. And he, <clears throat> I said, well, fine, we have, you know, it is, and I have some people, he, uh, he was in California, I was in New York, I have some people there, they'll come over and see you and go through the whole thing. He said, no, I don't want to see them, I want to talk to you. In any event, I was going to California for a sales trip a couple of weeks later, so we set up a meeting. He then told me that he could provide a 
$15 million in financing, which is what we needed under an interim agreement with the British government to reopen the factory. But for that, he wanted about a $2 million commission, and we sat down and we drafted a little agreement that provided for that. At the same time, he gave me some references. He gave me a banking reference in San Francisco, one of the largest banks. And I called the bank the next morning and talked to the president. He said, oh, yes, Mr. Hoffman's a regular customer here. We've done business with him for many, many years. We think he's a man of, of you know, very high esteem and estate. And he has on deposit uh, an eight-figure account. Well, I don't imagine there's more than six people in this room that have an eight-figure bank balance. That's between 10 and 100 million. It was, you know, very convincing. We then went through a series of meetings with the chairman and president of this bank, with uh, other people, all of, every one of which was a totally legitimate conversation, all pointed specifically at providing this financing. And it was always just around the corner. Well, finally, then about the first week of September, I got a phone call at my New York apartment. And of course, during this time, this is not the only individual that I'm having contact with. I'm talking to literally 50 other people, all of whom uh, have some possibility of providing the financial support that we need. He called me in, uh, on a Friday night, I think September 3rd, 1982, and he said, if you come to, uh, I'm in Washington at the Enfant Plaza Hotel, he said, the financing has now arrived and we're ready to close the deal. So if you can come down tomorrow, we'll, you know, we'll get it done. So Saturday, I jumped on Eastern Shuttle, and I flew to Washington, went to the hotel, uh, called his room from the lobby, and he said, well, you have, to, uh, you have to wait a little while. But he said, you're going to be very pleased. He said, I'm meeting with some people. He said, you're going to be very pleased. I've worked out an arrangement here that will provide not only the initial funding, but all the money you're ever going to need. So in any event, I get up to the room then about 45 minutes later. And we talk initially very legitimately about business, and suddenly he brings up the idea that he's going to invest the commission that he's supposed to get for providing this money, the $2 million commission for the $15 million investment, in a narcotics transaction. And that is going to then be used to, he will then reinvest it in the company. And of course, that's the first I've heard of anything illegal, and I become very upset. Uh, I don't know what to do about it. But I leave the room, I go down to the lobby, and I call my law firm in New York. And I said, I think I got myself in a lot of trouble. I said, this is what's happened. I've been talking to these people. They've, I've met the president of this big bank, who this man obviously works for. I met the chairman of the bank, and this is a 40-branch, multi-billion-dollar bank in San Francisco. And uh, now they suddenly are discussing an illegal transaction, and it's obvious that they're all involved in it. So, of course, the law firm said, well, let us think about it when you get back to the city call us and we'll figure out what to do. Well, I get back and I said, well, obviously, number one, you have no evidence at this point in time. Uh, number two, the two alternatives available to you are not too palatable. Obviously, if this is a organized crime controlled enterprise and they own this gigantic bank and all these people are part of it, which is clearly true, they are people with very deep connections, possibly all the way up to the Department of Justice. So the, the alternatives you have are, one, if you try to turn them in at this point in time, you'll be asked to become an informant against them. And, of course, to do that, once you've done it, your life is in jeopardy and you'll have to change your identity and maybe move up to Eureka, California as a supermarket clerk and your wife can <laughs> run a car wash or something. And, of course, that was unpalatable because I was still losing. 
I said, what we would recommend is that you string them along until we find a way to get this to the proper authorities, and we'll use our influence to see if we can find something out about it. But in the meantime, don't give them any money, don't take any money, and don't make any kind of a deal with them, no matter what happens. And of course, now we go through a period which has become quite aggressive. I'm now the president of the bank, who it turns out later is an FBI agent, is starting to make very, very threatening phone calls, threatening my life and threatening other things. Finally, at the end, I can't stand it anymore. And I said, well, I don't care what happens. I tell these people I don't want anything to do with this. And the uh, agent for the government said, well, look at Buddy. And I, this is on a tape recording. You're in this too far. And if you try to get out of it, some very bloody things are going to happen. We're going to send your daughter's head home in a shopping bag. Well, of course, that's shattering thing. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, that was the day before they led me out to California where I had to sit through this final so-called tape recording of this. <clears throat> now this, all of this has happened, and suddenly I'm arrested. And if you can imagine a contrast in my life, a week before, I'm one of the celebrated executives of America, and I, I don't know if you can imagine a kind of life, even today, I look back on it and I'm amazed because, that, of course, when I went to the Super Bowl, I didn't just go to the Super Bowl. I flew out in the Pete Rozelle's plane. I sat in his box. When I went to the Kentucky Derby, the governor of Kentucky sent his plane up and flew us down. Uh, when I went to the Indianapolis 500, all of these things you did every year, I was down in the pits with uh, Roger Penske and Mario Andretti. I mean, it's, that's the kind of life. If there was an important function or party anywhere in the city, my wife and I were always the first to be invited. All of a sudden, now I'm arrested and I'm in Terminal Island Prison with, I look around, this guy's a murderer, that guy's a bank robber. Here's a spy. Another guy's a terrorist. I mean, this is an entirely different world. And, of course, at this point in time, you're starting to think, well, you know, maybe I've done something wrong here. And my relationship to God, of course, came under very close scrutiny, as often happens. And people say, well, what is this foxhole conversion? But are those really real? Well, I think what happens is when your life is going spectacularly well and everything is working as good as it can, you're not inclined to look at the spiritual basis for your life or what's going on. I think it's perfectly legitimate, as, of course, Paul did on a Damascus road. When you really get in trouble, that's the time you take a look and try to figure out what, what went wrong. And I don't think it makes your commitment any less sure, but it certainly is a time for self-appraisal. Well, I've always been a quite religious person. In fact, for the 12 or 15 years before this happened, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral every single morning of my life, seven days a week for an hour, usually around 6.30, 7 o'clock, and uh, for prayer and meditation or mass if that was going on. And I don't think I missed three times in the 12 or 15 years. But somehow I didn't have a real relationship. I felt there was a spiritual void still in my life. Well. About a year before all this uh, trouble started, uh, I had bought a farm in New Jersey, and we then started to rebuild this old farmhouse. And then the following summer, we started spending our uh, weekends in the, at the farm. And my little daughter, who at that time was about three years old, started taking really horseback pony lessons from the lady across the street. And because my, my church was in Manhattan, we asked her what she writes. She said, why don't you come to church with us? 
Well, the church that they went to met in a high school auditorium there in, uh, in uh, Bridgewater, New Jersey, and it was called the First Evangelical Free Church, and it's a little Swedish derivative full gospel church. But I was really initially uh, put off and then later very impressed but very shocked because while I considered myself very religious, I hadn't really read or seen the Bible in a long, long time. It wasn't normal to carry the Bible to the Catholic Church. The, the priest interpreted it for you. That wasn't your job. That was his. In any event, I, suddenly to have a church that taught the Bible right from beginning to end, every word was the Bible. And uh, I was not only very impressed, but I became deeply involved in the church uh, that summer I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and then we had a water baptism for about 18 members of the congregation at the swimming pool at our house, our farmhouse there in the country. But what had happened is that while I had made this commitment, the truth is I still knew how to run my own program. And so consequently, while I said that, I was still the Lord of my own life, and I knew what to do and what not to do. Well, I think that... The Lord had been trying to get my attention for a long time, and maybe this is what he had to do. He had to knock me down and stand on my chest. Sitting in the middle of this prison was the spiritual equivalent of doing that. And, <laughs> and my wife, now I'm in prison trying to make bail, and they had set my bail at that time at $20 million. <laughs> now, this is a technique that's use sometimes when they want to prevent you from having adequate funds to defend yourself because probably aren't four guys in this room who could put up a $20 million bail tonight. It took quite a while to get that together. I think I was in prison a total of 10 or 12 days. And while I was there, it was an interesting experience, I think, from several standpoints. One is America, as you know, is 85% white and 15% minority. Well, the prisons are 85% minority and 15% white. And the reason for that is that the great gifts of this country are not equitably and equally distributed as they very well should be. I, my wife, at my request, brought a Bible to, uh, to the prison, and I couldn't quit reading it. For some reason, I had this absolute compulsion. I started reading it when the first light came in in the morning, and I would read it till the lights were turned off at 11 o'clock at night. I just couldn't quit reading it. Uh, the only time I took off was we had a, we were allowed an hour a day for recreation. We played volleyball in our cell block, won the championship, I might add. <laughs> Something I've, <laughs> I'm very proud of. Again, it's no doubt God's uh, providence, but uh, there was a young black guard on the afternoon shift who came in at four and worked till midnight. And he was, mornings, he was a student at the Fuller Theological, and of course he worked in the afternoons in order to have the money to finish going to school. And he and I spent a tremendous amount of time. We had uh, uh, Bible studies with some of the other prisoners, and then he talked to me just forever about Jesus. It was just a, a wonderful revelation. He had such a simple, beautiful understanding of the Lord and his relationship to all of us. Now about 10 days goes by, and I'm standing there late one afternoon. I, this is such a vivid uh, recollection in my mind. Because uh, it was a little light bulb screwed in the ceiling, I used to lay the Bible on the upper bunk and stand there and read, because that was the only light uh, that was adequate to read by. And the 
red California sunset is streaking in the window, so it was uh, late afternoon. But, uh, and, you know, and obviously my emotional state was, was in pretty bad shape. But uh, suddenly I felt uh, the most marvelous, wonderful, all-encompassing embrace. It really went right from the top of my head to the floor. It was just like you were back in your mother's arms. It was just, it's, uh, it's impossible to put it in words. And whether it lasted five minutes or 55, I couldn't tell you, but it was just a wonderful thing. And the Lord somehow through all of this kept telling me, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Just count on me. And lo and behold, now the next morning, we finally have got the bail thing put together, and my wife comes to take me away. And she looks at me and she said, what happened to you? And I said, what do you mean? Well, now I'd gone through a period, as I said, by that point in time I'd been five or six years, and the previous two years I think I'd made 43 transatlantic flights. So uh, I was walking jet lag. I didn't know whether I was coming or going, and I'd gotten to the point where I had to take two uh, sleeping pills to go to sleep at night. In the morning, I'd wind up taking uh, six cups or eight cups or ten cups of coffee, whatever it took to wake up. And then I had constant headaches by, oh, I'd wind up taking 20, 30, 40 aspirin or two, two, twos a day in order to get through this. Well, suddenly, after this experience, and since that time, I've never had a headache. I've never had to take anything to go to sleep. I wake up feeling refreshed every single day. And, of course, she looked at my face and she said, well, you look 20 years younger. Don't you realize what kind of trouble you're in? <laughs> but it was, uh, it was amazing. Well, then we went through, of course, a succession of insane events preparing for the trial. And finally, when the uh, day of the trial came, of course, having the peace of the Lord inside of you, and, and this is a very awesome thing because here's a bunch of guys trying to take your life. You know, when you're facing uh, 90 years in prison and you're close to 60 years old, that doesn't, let's see, you'll be 151 when you get out. <laughs> so really, is a, you know, any sentence is a, is a death sentence when you get all through with it. We now go through this period of preparation, and again, a number of miraculous or near-miraculous things seem to happen. Probably the best way to describe most of those is to talk about the courtroom itself. The first witness who testifies for them is a, the FBI agent who had uh, taken the role of the president of the bank, of this bank up in San Francisco. And the reason they put him on, he had been an accountant uh, agent for the FBI about 12 or 15 years. He's a very attractive ex-Marine, ex-football player, so they thought they were putting their best foot forward, extremely articulate. Well, one of the things that uh, you're entitled to do as a defendant is to subpoena the agent's daily log, among other documents that you're entitled to. And this is a handwritten log in which the uh, FBI agent is required to write day by day the things that went on and what he did in conjunction to the investigation. And we subpoenaed this man's log, which ostensibly had been written between the, in the, during the time of the investigation between uh, July and October of 1982. Well, in reading it, 17 of the dates were 1983. It would say August 17, 1983. Well, everybody, and of course the jury knew, you never write next year's date. I don't think anybody in this room has written 1988 yet. You might write last year's date, but you never write next year's date. So it became obvious that this was not the proper document, that it had been fabricated for the occasion. Well, on cross-examination, my attorney, Howard Weitzman, who was uh, incredible, of course, 
got the agent to admit that he had destroyed the original documents and had fabricated new evidence that was designed to be substantially more incriminating. And that was the result of it. And of course, he admitted that those, you know, that they had been done in 1983. That's why they filed the dates up. And of course, 50 members of the Department of Justice had looked at all this, so you can't imagine why they didn't realize that they, you know, so that obviously the Lord put blinders on them. The agent finally then breaks down and he turns violent red perspiration, breaks out all over his face, and he admits that he lied and he destroyed evidence and he fabricated new evidence. Now, if my attorney had done that, he'd be serving 15 years right now. Now, the, this is on a stand and the morning break comes and the whole courtroom then is evacuated. Everybody goes to get a cup of coffee. The only two people who are left in the courtroom are the prosecutor and he sets this agent down at a table a little shorter than this. And he starts screaming at him. He said, you shouldn't have said that. You should never have admitted this. You should have said this and this and this. Well, what he doesn't realize is that the microphone on the table is connected to the press room. <laughs> and he is now in front of 104 reporters from all over the world. He is now attempting to... Uh, to interfere with justice and to fabricate evidence and, of course, to coach a witness, all of which are illegal. Well, now the break ends and, of course, a couple of reporters get my attorney, Howard McCorn, and they tell him what happened. So Howard can hardly keep a straight face. <laughs> Meantime, of course, the prosecutor and the agent have never left the courtroom, so they're still in there. Well, the agent gets back on the stand and Howard says to him rather coyly, he said, well, now, uh, is there anything about this morning's testimony that now on subsequent reflection you might want to modify? Well, of course, the man immediately tries to cancel everything he said and say what the prosecutor told him to say. Well, of course, the reporters start laughing so hard that the judge has to call about a 15-minute recess. Well, subsequently now talking to the to the, uh, some of the jurors, they said, well, by the time that was over, it was totally clear to them that, you know, the whole thing was a fabrication. Obviously, if you have any real evidence, you don't have to create false evidence in order to uh, prosecute a case. But looking back on it, the, between the two trials that I've gone through, I think the government spent something like $54 million. And, of course, they had, which is more than I think on any combination of trials in history. And... The only way uh, an individual, you know, they win about 98% of the time. The only way an individual has a chance is when something like this and the Lord intervenes. Well, a number of other things happened, and that, I cited that only as one example. Maybe I'll tell you one or two more just to give you a little flavor. <laughs> the uh, confidential informant, of course, was the only evidence they had against. There was no tangible evidence of any time. The only evidence is a confidential informant. He's a man who has now served two felony convictions, has put his best friends in prison three times and uh, he has to keep changing his name because some of them seem to have a little animosity toward him and <laughs> would like to blow him away but in the meantime he's the primary evidence they have well now the prosecutor puts him on the stand and to start off with he said well why are you doing this to the man he said are you do you dislike the defendant here why and the guy said oh no he said I want to I want to repent, I want to redeem myself with society, I want to become a worthwhile, useful citizen again, I want to earn the respect of my fellow man, I know that my life has been wrong, and it's just very touching, and of course being an old-time confidence man, it was very convincing. Well, two things happened. One is, 
At that moment, and only for that moment, another attorney who happened to be in the building trying another case stuck his head in the door, and that speech sounded vaguely familiar to him. So he went back to his office that night, and he looked through his files, and lo and behold, another confidential informant that the same prosecutor prosecuted the case, but it wasn't the same informant, used exactly the same speech word for word. So obviously... This was a little bit phony. Well, at the same time, by some miracle, we had subpoenaed the government's uh, telephone logs, and we found that while they claimed all calls had been recorded, we found some 40 calls that had, not, that, that had been recorded, but they didn't deliver the tapes, and so, which, of course, is a violation of the law also. But in the process, in the box with the telephone logs was a copy of a telegram from the head of the FBI in Los Angeles to Webster at that time, the head of the FBI, and also to the head of the Department of Justice, saying, we really have a problem with this informant. He has said, unless he gets 10% of all the money confiscated in this case, he's going to blow it sky high. Well, of course, under the law, any exculpatory evidence must be delivered to the defendant. So, of course, the prosecutors violated the law by withholding this evidence, and, of course, the judge just went totally insane. The words he used on the prosecutors were terrible. And, of course, when the jurors heard this telegram, again, it was totally gone. Fifty people from Washington in the courtroom every single day. Now, during the course of the trial, of course, a number of things happened. But one man, somehow, one of the agents who'd been a co-case agent, suddenly decided that he just couldn't, his conscience wouldn't let him go through what he was going through with. So he came to Howard Weitzman, and he said, I'm going to have to tell the story. So he came out, and he, of course, is the one that said, I had been picked out of the newspaper, and he discussed all the various crimes they were trying to decide how to frame me with. And ultimately, because he showed up, the, the, of course, the prosecutor decided to get their slates clean, surveillance are required. as opposed to a telephone surveillance. They're required to have certain form filled out, which must be approved by the officials in Washington. Well, they never bothered to do that. And, of course, later on there was an uh, investigation by the, what is it, the GAO or something, and, and they decided they better get their skirts clean. So if months and months later they just then created these documents and they backdated them three or four months. And this included three levels of the Department of Justice right up to the very top. And, and that's the same crime, as you know, that Richard Nixon's attorney went to prison for. In any event, they confessed to that and a dozen other things. I think during the course of the trial, it was ultimately shown that the, that the government agents and the prosecutors committed some 41 separate felonies in attempting to prosecute me. Well, of course, by the time that was over, on the very first ballot, the jurors came back, and they were totally outraged, and they said that the government can't be permitted, and they were sending a message to the Department of Justice, that they can't be permitted to pick a man out of the newspaper and destroy his life for their own personal gains and, you know, so on and so on. Anyhow, they were so vehement about it that when it was over, uh, of course, a couple of other people, attorneys, came to me and said, well, I've, that was nice, except I think they overdid it because these guys have got to come back after you again. They can't let you get away with that because you've really humiliated them beyond anything. Well, I couldn't believe it would happen, but lo and behold, it uh, did happen. But in the meantime, the day the case was over, uh, I had an interesting experience at Spago. <laughs> My attorney had a little celebration party, and they had two tables. 
And of course, it winds up my wife is sitting with all the important people and I'm sitting with the secretaries and the clerks at another table. I didn't understand exactly what that meant until the next day when she said, I've leased a house here, I'm taking a job with ABC and you're not moving in. Well, of course, that's how I found out that she was about to divorce me, which was really maybe the most devastating thing that happened to me. I think over the period of about the next 90 days, I lost about 30 or 40 pounds. But, uh, and I was really uh, shattered because it was such a shocking revelation. I think on top of that, she said, besides I'm marrying another man in about two weeks or something like that. So obviously this uh, flirtation didn't happen last night at Spago. But uh, having gone through all that and then subsequently uh, a number of things happened, but the British government had decided that it was very much in their interest to keep me on the frying pan because of, and this is all going to come out in a subsequent one of my actions against them, and I, so I can't say too much about it. Uh, there was, you know, very clearly an approved conspiracy between the two governments for certain specific reasons. So uh, they, at the same time, then instituted civil action against me and tied up all my assets. So again, I've been basically without any income at all now since, uh, oh, the early part of, uh, or since uh, uh, 1982. And unfortunately, financial planning, I'd gotten caught in some peculiar circumstances. I'd had a farm in California, which I was about to sell, and I just traded a farm I used to have in Idaho for a big one in New Jersey, and I still owed a couple million dollars on that. And my monthly payments were astronomical, but I'd planned as soon as I sold the one in California, I'd pay everything off, and I wouldn't owe anybody, uh, as Gunner says, I wouldn't owe a, soul, a cent to anybody in the world. Well, meantime, I got caught in the middle, and my monthly payments were something like $60,000 now. And during this period of time, of course, in the beginning, I scrounged and sold what I could and I borrowed what I could. Well, eventually, it became impossible. And I ran out of friends. I ran out of money. I ran out of everything. I finally had to give it to the Lord. And believe it or not, until I made this settlement, which will become effective next month, somehow, some way, money appeared from somewhere and made those payments. And my secretary had called and she said, we're really desperate this month. We can't do this or that. I said, don't worry about it. It'll all be taken care of. And somehow it was. And believe me, it, it, it really works. Then, of course, I was charged in a new trial in Detroit. And again, this, uh, and, and I might say in the California trial, we didn't put on a single witness. When the government was through, we just closed up. And, of course, the jury acquitted us. In the Detroit trial, an almost similar thing happened in that, uh, in the process, they were trying to make the allegation that I had made an agreement as in my company with a non-existent corporation. And in order to accomplish that, they had to hide a lot of documents, maybe 50,000 documents, and pretend they didn't exist and pretend the company didn't exist. Well, on one document, there was a misstatement of the address of this company, which was a trial draft. And so... The FBI agent got up and testified, said, well, I was out strolling in Geneva one Sunday morning, and I happen to remember that this contract called was addressed uh, 120 Rue de Lausanne. So I said, I was going by there anyhow. I looked, and lo and behold, it's a vacant lot, and here's a picture of it. So they put this gigantic picture up of this vacant lot. And he said, now that's where this company is supposed to be. Well, it turned out that... The company was across the street at 121, and that was only a typographical error, which, of course, they well knew. And it, they had purchased Bernie Kornfeld's IOS Bank building, which is an 18-story building across the street. 
again, a visiting attorney happened to be in the courtroom just for a few minutes, and he said, you know, there's something wrong with the way this guy, the way the question is being asked and the way it's being answered. So it just happened that he was doing some business with a Geneva law firm, and he called him. He said, go find out about this company and this address. Well, lo and behold, in the Swiss Commercial Register and everywhere else, there's this gigantic office building with a company's name right on it. It's been a registered corporation there since 1963 and this and that. And, of course, when Howard then cross-examined the agent, the agent said, well, I later found out that I'd made a mistake when so-and-so testified. Well, it turned out that so-and-so testified after him, or after him, so it was impossible to have happened. And, of course, they get caught in this, again, compounded series of lies. So, again, we didn't have to put on a witness. We just closed our case when the government closed theirs, and, you know, the Lord took care of the whole thing. And, uh, again, of course, we were, you know, it was totally vindicated. Uh, now, at this point in time, of course, I made a commercial settlement with the other people, which again turned out to be astronomically better. Of course, I wanted to buy the rights to my name back because I want to go back in the automobile business. But it turned out to be an astronomically better settlement than I ever would have dreamed could have happened by $20 million. But in, and, and that it was, again, was just the Lord's work. Uh, the thing that he does in your life when you truly have faith is amazing. I always liken what, uh, particularly in the Detroit trial, the tremendous feeling of confidence and inner peace you have. Now, here's a whole bunch of people who have spent jillions of dollars, and they're parading all these people in to harass you, again, trying to put you away forever. And uh, in the meantime... You have this tremendous inner strength, and, of course, it's a very conspicuous. It's very disconcerting to the prosecutor because he's used to seeing the, the victim cower, become an alcoholic, take Valium or whatever uh, all the time, and you're standing there very tough. You feel like uh, I always think of the analogy of David back when, uh, as you recall, he was too small to go to war. So the, his brothers are at war and the king, and, of course, now they've been over this valley with uh, Goliath's guys on one side and, uh, and they're on the other. And Goliath's down there now every day for months on end. He stands down in the valley, this 10-foot soldier. I guess his armor alone weighed about 700 pounds. But uh, he's standing there taunting the, uh, David's uh, compatriots, saying, hey, send us a soldier down here. And if he can beat me, that, then, we, then we lose. And if uh, he can't, then uh, so on and so on. And he's taunting him, saying all kinds of horrible things. Well, now David's mother sends him to the front with some cheese for the, the brothers and for the commander. And he hears this guy talking. He said, they, they can't say that about the, my Lord's country. And I'm going to go down there and fight him. Well, then the king says, well, nobody else has got enough courage to do it. Maybe we might as well let this guy go because we're going to lose anyhow. Well, then he tries to put his armor on David, and David is too small even to carry the king's armor. So he goes down basically unarmed to face this 10-foot, 600-pound giant. He doesn't walk down. He runs down because he knows he's going to win. Well, that's how I felt going into the courtroom. It's a powerful, powerful feeling of peace and strength that you have inside of you. Uh, that's how I got to where I am today. And, of course, now uh, all that's behind me. It's been a long, as I said, it's been about 14 years now. And, and suddenly, really good things are starting to happen. Listening to some of the stories here earlier, I think you have to 
think in terms of two analogies. You know, one is that I think you were talking about the uh, NASA guy coming. You know, I'm a student of theoretical physics. I always have been, and I read it more as a hobby. It's gotten to a point where I can't keep up with it, but I read it. And as those of you who are uh, physicists in the audience know, the contemporary theory of the formation of the universe is what they call the Big Bang Theory, which basically says in one 50 millionth of a second from nothing, everything that you see emerged. And, of course, they have all kinds of theoretical and evidentiary foundation for this. Well, obviously, that couldn't have happened without a super being. The other thing that I often reflect on, I just happened to be reading a book the other night. It was happened to be a biography of a couple of mathematicians, Norbert Wiener and John von Neumann. And uh, von Neumann is the in inventor, of course, of the computer that uh, has become such an important part of all of our lives. But he also, as a proceeding to inventing the computer, created a thing called game theory. Now, game theory originally, in its original form, was created by uh, Pascal, who had set about to prove the existence of God, whether God existed or not. And he invented a really a method of logic, which is called a zero-sum game theory. And the conclusion he came to was that whether there is or not, it's a lot safer to believe there is. And... Uh, <laughs> To which Voltaire made some statement like uh, telling him how sacrilegious all of that was. Uh, I can't tell you what a powerful and, and, and great force this is in my life. And, uh, you know, people look at me and they think, well, I've lost so much. And the truth is I've lost nothing compared to what I've gained. It's such a powerful, strong, and wonderful thing. The other thing that... Uh, You know, the other thing that, uh, that is important in all this is even if you win, if you win without the Lord, you're not going to do any good anyhow. You know, they, I happen to be reading uh, War and Peace again the other night. And one thing Tolstoy said about Napoleon at the peak of his power, he said, Napoleon was incapable of a single moral thought. And if you fight all the time, you become an animal like the animals that are attacking you. And so what if you win? What good does it do you if you're, not, if, if you're nothing? If you don't have inner peace, if you don't have these, these other things, what good does it do you to be a winner if in the end you've really given up your soul and you no longer are capable of having a normal human relationship with the rest of the world? So that's another reason that I think it's extremely important, no matter what the circumstance you're facing in your life, this is something you have to give a great deal of thought to. I think instead of my going on, what I would like to do now is if anybody would like to ask a question or two, I'd be pleased to answer any. Yes, sir. Yeah, the question was, have any of these uh, people who engaged in these illegal acts during the course of my prosecution been punished? And the answer is only to the extent that uh, uh, their incompetence was punished. I don't think any of them uh, received any disciplinary action at all. I think the agent who got caught changing his log, is now in a stolen car detail in Missoula. Uh, the, the prosecutor who spoke inadvertently into the microphone is now shuffling papers and down in the basement of the federal building, but none of them were given any discipline at all. And as a consequence, and I've, I'm doing this not, and I have absolutely no feel, hard feelings or animosity toward any of these people. I've forgiven them all. Uh, it's not my nature to be vengeful anyhow, particularly as a Christian. 
But I do feel it's necessary for me to institute legal proceedings. I've retained Alan Dershowitz and a couple of other attorneys now to bring uh, action against them, primarily because I think it's a, it's a terrible thing for our country to permit such a perversion of the systems of government. Yes, sir. Yes, the, the question was that I did not disclose my uh, Christianity while during the terms of the trial, at the time of the trial. And I didn't do that because I didn't want to trade on it. It's too precious to me. And I felt that uh, after it was over, it was time enough. You know, we're going through a period, and I think that this, uh, uh, the need for the, for the Bible and the Lord in this world has never been more serious than it is right now. You know, America really is the protector of individual freedom in the whole world. And today, America is suffering a real crisis of morality, a crisis of integrity, and a crisis of honesty. I happen to be reading, I think, Time magazine here two weeks ago, and they were talking about that subject. Within the administration, I think there have been 131 separate either indictments, investigations, or charges of impropriety. Uh, now, that's incredible, including, I think, by the time uh, the president will have finished his term, six members of the cabinet will have served prison terms. I mean, that's unbelievable. When I was a kid uh, under the Eisenhower administration, a guy named uh, Sherman Adams, who was an advisor to President Eisenhower, not a cabinet member, not in the administration, had accepted a top coat from a guy up in Boston named Bernard Goldfein. It was a major scandal. Today the things that have gone on in the White House basement and these other things. Wall Street is a, an enigma. Here's a guy like uh, Boski with five or six hundred million dollars out stealing another ten. They say by the time that's all over that probably thirty or forty of the key people in the investment community will be in prison. Boy Jeffries down in uh, Newport's a good friend of mine. I was just shocked. Now here's a guy going away for five years worth a couple hundred million dollars. Why is he fooling around like this because we have a total perversion in this country of what's important. You know, the, the, everybody is so materialistic that your only measure is money. Well, if you let that be the criterion of your life, you're going to be very, very unhappy. And that's how you get in all this trouble. I'm, I'm so shocked. I'm so shocked with the young people, particularly in the East, the so-called yuppies. They're, you know, their only ambitions in life are the BMW, the big apartment, and a little cottage on the beach. And no matter what you have to do to get that, getting that is the objective. Well, that isn't the objective at all. You know, probably the most intelligent and wealthiest man that ever lived in the history of the world was King Solomon. And if you read Ecclesiastes, I think it's interesting because when he gets all through and it, he had... 700 wives, 300 concubines, the 40,000 best horses in the world, tens of thousands of acres, tons of gold. Can you imagine 700 mother-in-laws? <laughs> but when he got all through, he said, all of this is for nothing if you don't have the Lord. And that really is true. And that's, unfortunately, what happens to people who set a materialistic objective as their only goal in life. If that's all it's about, then you don't need to be here. You're not necessary. Excuse me. Now, here's a young man over here. Thank you. I mean, uh, the question was why the British government withheld the $93 million. Yeah, that's uh, now become uh, pretty clear. Uh, 
and that's, of course, one of the causes of action that we're bringing against them, and that will be done very quickly. Uh, I can't discuss it at this time, but we have now a great deal of documentation that supports our position. Yes, sir. Of course, the, the children were the – that was a very difficult thing for them. I'll never forget uh, one experience I had when uh, – after my wife had left and I was uh, staying at a friend's house in, uh, up in uh, California, and uh, my daughter called one night and she was talking about some television commercial that showed a happy family doing something nice. And she said, Dad, that reminded me of when we were happy. And I, nothing ever sh shattered me so much. I was totally devastated for a couple of days after that. So the impact on the children has been very substantial. But I think that there's two things that you always have to remember, and one is, uh, certainly the Bible says this many times, but so do a lot of other people, that all of these various trials really eventually, if they don't kill you, they make you a lot stronger. And if, <laughs> and if you let them be a growing experience, and if you can't avoid them, you better let them be a growing experience, they actually make you a better person. They certainly get your perspective in order. You know, it's like being on a ship that's going down and you can only save one thing. Well, now you have to decide in a matter of minutes what one thing is the most precious to you in your life. But it helps you get your perspective in order. And I think that the truth is, if, it do, if you don't allow it to make you bitter, that it is a very positive and constructive thing. Uh, in terms of what will I do from now on, I honestly feel that the best part of my life is still ahead of me. I have a, a lot of plans. I now have a lot of opportunities. And I, uh, of course, at the same point in time, I think with uh, uh, the knowledge and the uh, understanding I have and my perspective with the Lord now, uh, my life is going to be a lot different than it has been in the past. And I've always considered myself a moral man. I don't think I, anybody can say I ever cheated him out of anything. I've uh, always had the same concerns for other people, maybe much more so. I think I was a leading advocate of minority rights and uh, helping the disadvantage maybe of anybody in America. But uh, at the same time, if you use as your standard of what's right and wrong what people around you are doing, you can always find somebody doing something worse than you are. The only standard you can really use is the absolute one. It has to be in the Bible. Yes, sir. Back in the corner. Uh, well, I, as I say, the question is, can I share anything about this uh, the new car project I'm working on and what else I'm doing? Uh, first, I'm involved in a couple of, uh, of ministries of my own. I'm a co-director of a home for homeless people down in San Diego, the New Start and Life Center, which I've been working hard at. We're in the process now of trying to build a new home for homeless people in uh, downtown San Diego. And this is an interesting concept because... In that, unfortunately, and it's a, it's a shame that it is this way, but because an important part of the rehabilitation of the people, and we bring them in as a family, has, is the fact that we do teach them about the Lord and make that a key part because that's why we're so successful. We're not entitled to normal government funding, and so consequently it has to be done privately. I also am now getting involved in a program that I have been involved in on and off over the years, which I want to start in a major way and I'm meeting with a group of ministers in L.A. to do this, and that is what I call a adopt-a-family concept. And, you know, back in the uh, 
early days before World War II, everybody lived in the cities. And so uh, within the churches in the community, you had the wealthy and the poor and those in between. And if somebody got in trouble, then the church rose as a body. If the barn burned, they had a barn raising. Or if a man broke his leg, the family helped, was helped by the church community. Today, you're in a situation where the well-to-do have all moved out of the cities to the Beverly Hills or the Bloomfield Hills or the Palm Beaches of the world, and the poor are left to shift for themselves, and there is nowhere to turn. And so, consequently, you not only don't have the economic support within the church community, but you also lack the role model. Like, I was down working with a home for unwed teenage mothers in uh, Washington, D.C. The kids in Washington, D.C. and downtown, when they look around, the success they see at the big cars and so on are the pimps, the drug pushers, and the people who commit robberies. Now, if that's all a young guy sees, even a young guy who's got a lot of potential, what's he going to wind up with? He needs to have a relationship with somebody who can convince him that with his mind and his ability, he can program a computer. He can be a doctor or a lawyer or a success in life. He doesn't have to be one of those people. And so that's the objective of that program. At the same time now, as a result of the settlement, I now have earned the, gotten back the rights to my name and also to certain patents that were a part of this uh, project. So I expect to have an announcement within about 60 to 90 days on the CAR project. And at that time, we'll disclose everything. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Uh, she says, I don't understand what they have to gain by framing you. Well, that's a very common thing. In the government today, you got to remember, there are literally thousands of people who are involved in various parts of the Department of Justice. And the only way they can get ahead to rise above is they need a celebrity prosecution. In, a prosecu in prosecuting my case, the guy they really wanted was Johnny Carson. But he's so well bodyguarded, they couldn't get close to him. So I was accepted as a, as a poor substitute. But it really is a... And for which he has never thanked me. <laughs> but that's, uh, unfortunately, that's the nature of the, of the business, and it's wrong. It's a perversion of justice, but it's the way it is. Yes, sir. <laughs> Would you be embarrassed if I kissed you? <laughs> yes. Uh, what I do plan to do is now... Uh, Parts have become very difficult for the old car, and I'm uh, planning now to uh, get try to recover the tooling. When it looked like I was going to be acquitted in California, the British government took the body dyes from the car and threw them in the ocean. We now are uh, trying to put together a project to send some divers down and bring those back up. If they may be salvageable or they may not, a couple of years of salt water could have eaten them away. But in any event, I do plan to provide... Uh, com uh, spare parts for the old cars, but at the same time, the new car is very different than that. Yes, ma'am. She says, any ladies in my life? <laughs> there isn't any short answer to that. No, at this point in time, there aren't, but I've, I, I've learned a lot, and I, what I have to say is so awful, I don't know if I can say it, but uh, actually my criteria previously I now recognize was completely wrong. And that, of course, every relationship I've ever had and every marriage was totally based on uh, 
physical, sensual aspect. And, and I think the virtue of a Christian relationship, especially to the young couples in this room, and I see a lot of young people, is that with a Christian relationship, I now recognize that you become friends first, and you really know each other as people. I don't think I knew uh, my wives as human beings at all. They were, well, I won't tell you what they were, but you understand. And so today, I have a totally different perspective. And of course, that makes your criteria much more difficult. However, applications are being accepted. <laughs> Send photographs. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, no, they, they, and they still are doing all those things. In fact, one of the things that happened in our case, which I didn't mention, was that uh, the uh, FBI hired a couple of uh, people to plant narcotics in my attorney's car because they felt he was too aggressive. Well, it turned out that one of the people they hired's brother had been saved really by my attorney. So they came to him and they told him the whole story. Well, then he took him down, and statements were taken by the, you know, everybody, and but nothing's ever happened. Oh boy. Can I make a observation? It's obvious that while you no doubt were treated badly, that you have a lot of hostility in your heart. And, and it's going to ruin your life now. The worst thing you can have is hatred and hostility because that's a positive passion that takes your own energy and helps keeps you from living a normal life. The best thing you can do is get that out of your mind and go find a new life and just forget about it completely. Let all those people go. The Lord's going to take care of them when the time comes. I'm going to have, let, let's see there, let's have one more question and that's it. Here is a young. The, uh, I can't even repeat the question. That's <laughs> He said, obviously, I've uh, spent a certain amount of time in the fast lane, and does the devil ever bring you those temptations? And, you know, well, obviously, that, uh, you know, all of us are human, and uh, life is a trip, and you're fighting. I think that's true of everybody. I don't care how spiritual you are. You're going to be subject to temptations all the time. And so it's a serious problem. But the thing I found is back in my old life, I like fast cars and beautiful women and good food. Now I like slow cars, ugly women, and bad food. <laughs> nice to be with you.